we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this afternoon together. Acts chapter 2. I'd like to just begin by reading the text uh, this time together. We'd like to take a look at the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. The text should be up on the screen. I'll read it, we'll pray, and we're going to charge in and see what the Lord has for us today. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Lord, as we read the text together, now, Father, come and equip speaker and hearers with the aid of your spirit to communicate from this text and for hearts to receive what your spirit has for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible is certainly not short on strange and amazing stories. Remarkable supernatural accounts of God's mighty hand. A sea opening up to allow a nation of people to cross through on dry ground and escape their enemies. Bread falling from the sky like rain to feed hungry people in a desert. Three men unwilling to compromise their worship of God thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet they walk about and come out without even the smell of smoke on their clothes. These stories, they all make pretty good sense. They all follow a theme. God comes and rescues and saves and provides for his people with his mighty hand. It's usually not too difficult to interpret what's going on in these stories, but Acts chapter 2 seems just strange. It's just a strange story. 120 people gather for a prayer meeting in a room when suddenly there's a sound of a violent wind, something like flames descend on their heads, and they begin to speak 
in languages they did not previously know, at a time and in a location that people happened to be there from all around the world and are able to hear and understand what they're saying. The question that came from the crowd is the title of the message. What does this mean? What does this mean? I hope to begin this afternoon to answer that question. Now, we're going to be spending several weeks in Acts chapter 2. It's a very significant chapter in the Bible, so I'm just beginning it. Tim is going to pick up uh, next week and continue on in this chapter. But here's how I upfront want to sort of answer this question, and there's a slide with this on it. It says, this day of Pentecost was an extremely important and significant event in God's plan to redeem his people. A unique event filled with meaning that completed the saving work of Christ and shaped and launched the church into an age where the gospel is to be sown and to bear its fruit. The goal this afternoon is to impress upon your hearts the significance of this event, this unique event in Acts chapter 2, in such a way that it fills your heart with faith and with hope for what God has done for us that results in a renewed vision and strength for the great mission of making Christ known. So what I want to present to you is just like we would look to the cross, see what Christ has done in his death, understanding that that death on the cross was in fact atonement for our sins. And so we look to the cross with that understanding. And in that understanding, it begins to generate hope and faith in our hearts because we recognize and understand what that death meant. Just as we look to the resurrection, Christ coming up out of the grave, God raising him from the dead, and him walking around in new supernatural and eternal life tells us something. And so we look to that resurrection, and it gives us hope for our resurrection. Just as we look at Jesus' ascension, that he ascended to the Father, so he is currently reigning over all from above in the heavenlies. He is alive and well and reigning. And so, too, we look to the day of Pentecost. We look back on that unique event and realize that God has sent his spirit and imparted his spirit into the hearts and lives of the believers. He has done that act, and we look to that act to fill our hearts with faith, with hope. The outline today, to answer the question, what does this mean? The answer's in three parts. It's a sign of fulfillment, it's a sign of God's presence, and it's a sign of God's plan. So the first point this afternoon is it is a sign of fulfillment. The day of Pentecost arrived, our verse 1 says. Now, the word arrived, I think, could be better translated fulfilled because that word fulfilled is kind of a unique, not so often used word in the Bible. Luke did actually use it in his gospel. So Luke, same author of Acts 
and the gospel according to Luke, he used that word, fulfilled, talking about a major turning point transition in the gospel in Luke 9, 51, 52, where it says, Jesus, when the days were fulfilled, set himself for Jerusalem. In other words, this is the hinging transitional part in the gospel of Luke, where Jesus' life and ministry goes to a certain point and all of a sudden transition. Something is fulfilled. It is time. The time has come, and he sets himself toward Jerusalem. There's one other time that Luke uses this word. It also means the boat is swamped. So when the disciples were in the water and the storm brewed up and the waves were splashing over and the boat began to fill up, this is the word. The boat is swamped. Okay, we imagine we're all in a boat and the waves are coming in and the water's filling up and now the boat is full. It is fulfilled, is the word. We're going down. It's happened. It's time. The boat is full of water. That's, that's the word that's being used. And so when Luke is writing this, the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. He's signaling something. He's telling us more than just, uh, just happened to be the day of Pentecost. No, something significant is being fulfilled here on this day. This is a fulfillment of something big. Pentecost was one of the major festivals in Israel's calendar, also known as the Feast of Weeks. It was to take place 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. So from the day of First Fruits, when they gather in a handful of the first fruits and they offer that to the Lord, count seven weeks, and on the day after that seventh week, the 50th day is this feast. And when you go back in the Old Testament, you try and trace this out and map this out, it, it gets a little unclear. But what's important for us to understand is that at the time of Acts chapter 2, what was clearly and commonly understood was the day of Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. That's what they were celebrating. And what they were celebrating specifically was the day of Pentecost was a commemoration and a celebration of God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So while you don't find that information in the scriptures, what's happening in reality at the time that this is being written is that that's what everybody was celebrating. And Jesus comes and he begins to, in a sense, transform these holidays with their true and real meaning. So 50 days prior to this, we have the Passover, the Last Supper, the, the institution of communion that we celebrate as a church. So he takes an old festival of Passover, and now he adds the full, new, right, ultimate meaning to it when he sits with the disciples at the Last Supper and says, I want you to understand what this is all about. I am the meal. It's me. Feast on me. And he transforms this meal and gives it this, this new covenant meaning and now we're 50 days later and we're on the day of Pentecost 
celebrating, looking back at the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And now we're getting a renewed new covenant interpretation, understanding, fulfillment of this event. Just as God himself came down to Moses and met him on Mount Sinai and gave him the law, written on stone by the finger of God, now we're seeing the fulfillment of the promise of God from Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This Pentecost was a unique day of fulfillment of the saving work of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm wanting to emphasize this because I I think we tend to read Acts chapter 2 and think first and foremost about our personal experience with the Holy Spirit. Am I supposed to have that kind of experience? Are we supposed to duplicate what took place on Acts chapter 2? And so before we get to personal experience, just like we look to the cross, just like we took to the resurrection, we look to the day of Pentecost. And if we look to it well with understanding of what it really means, it will have its effect on our hearts, on our lives together, on our mission as a church. The saving works of Christ, this was the final one that took place, that completed all what Christ came to do. The final act after his ascension was to send the Spirit for the apostles and those disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. This completed the works of Christ. The promises of God were completed with the outpouring of the Spirit From there, the church was ready to move into the next season. What is Pentecost all about? It's helpful to understand that, first, everything that's wrong in the world, in you, in me, everything that is not right in the world is not right, has become not right in two phases, a two-step process process. This is why Genesis chapter 3 is so important for us. Phase 1, people rebelling against God, rejecting God, separating themselves from God, saying to God, your word, I don't trust it. I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it. I know you said this. I don't think you're out for my good. I say, no, the clay is saying to the potter, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not buying it. I don't think this is for my good. I reject it. That's phase one. Human separation from God via rebellion against God. From there, out of that heart, out of that rebellion, out of that sinful heart, now all the evil finds its way. That, that, that has a trajectory that affects everything about the world. Everything began to fall apart. You could say that was the initiation of the second law of thermodynamics. Everything goes to pot from here. 
everything's going to break down. Everything's going to go bad. It is not going to get better. It is not going to improve. It only goes in one direction. So everything that's wrong happens in those two phases. And so too, now the remedy comes in two phases. First part is correcting the first part of the problem. Let's get man's heart right with God. Let's restore that relationship between the rebel and his or her creator. Let's enact a plan to fix the broken relationship between the two. When that part of the plan is complete, then that gospel, that grace of God, will have its trajectory, its effect. When your heart is restored to God and you have right standing in Christ with God and the grace of God is at work in you, now phase two can begin. So Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, was the final piece of the puzzle, the final component of the saving acts of Jesus Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. That concluded phase one of the solution. So from that moment, now the church is ready to move forward and progress that trajectory of the grace of God at work inside the hearts of his believers will now grow and spread. And there it is laid out. Here's what's going to happen. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses, beginning here and then there, and you're going to take that to the ends of the earth. That is what the grace of God is going to do in your hearts and in your lives. Pentecost was a day of fulfillment. It fulfilled the work of Christ for the people of Christ, ready to begin the next phase. Second point is a sign of God's presence. There were a few phenomenal signs that took place, strange but meaningful. The sound of a mighty wind. When you first read this, we're just, we just tend to think about special effects. It's like, wow, it was a special effect. That was a strange thing that happened. But, but the sound of the wind had real meaning. I mean, if you grew up a Jew, went to Hebrew school, learned your Old Testament, or if you grew up at Sovereign Grace Church and went to children's ministry your whole life and learned all the Bible stories, then when you heard about the wind you would have some reference points and it would have some meaning to it. It's not just wind. Wind in both Hebrew and Greek uses the same word for wind, breath, spirit. So this is representing something. This is saying something. In the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is God imparting his life-giving breath, his spirit, his breath, his wind, 
This is his life that he is giving. There's another other wonderful encounter about wind, and there could be dozens throughout the Bible, but I'm just going to give you these, these couple here. But in Ezekiel chapter 37 is the prophecy about the valley of the dry bones. I'll just read this to you because it's really remarkable when you see it in light of wind. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them and he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The wind of God the breath of God, the spirit of God. But of course, it was the sound. It was the sound of the wind. Now, I don't know exactly of these 120 people up in this upper room how much actual wind they felt. What's record is, recorded was that it was the sound of the wind. Now, when Tammy and I moved to California in 1990, we were in our first year here, and we experienced our first earthquake. Now, some of you know us well enough. Ron and Tammy are about as like a couple of white pieces of bread as you can imagine. I mean, just quiet, reserved, and, you know, we, we, we are the, the parents of the groom in my big fat Greek wedding. We're, we're that. We had so... And you set us in a room full of Greeks or Italians or something, and we sit there, you know, trembling in a state of shock. Why is everybody screaming at everybody all the time? We're just, we're just that kind of people. So it might be a little bit hard for you to imagine Ron and Tammy acting like complete lunatics, but we did when we experienced our first earthquake. We were fit to be committed. We just went berserk. We were crazy, screaming, yelling, didn't know what to do. The ground had never moved in our lives 
ever, this was an entirely new experience for us. But I will never forget, you know, you move to California, everybody's got a bunch of advice about getting ready for earthquakes and what to do and stand in the door under a table, this, save some water, don't run outside. All, you know, everybody was talking about the list, but nobody, nobody told me about the noise. Nobody said anything about the sound. Now, this is 1990. This is the Sierra Madre quake. We're in a house on Topeka Street in Pasadena here. And I remember my first thought was, I think the garbage man fell asleep at the wheel and just careened the garbage truck into the front of my house. Actually, it wasn't my first thought. My first thought was a train, but I scratched that because that train would have to go about 10 miles not on tracks because there weren't any tracks around. So I thought my next best piece of logic was it must have been the garbage truck that just plowed into the front of my house. That's the kind of noise that we heard during that earthquake. I don't know how much wind they felt in that upper room. What we know is that they heard the sound of rushing wind. And everybody was astonished. But they knew what wind meant. It meant God. It meant God was present in the wind. Then tongues of fire. On Mount Sinai is where Moses first saw the burning bush, a bush that was on fire, but the bush didn't burn up. He was inquisitive and said, let me go and find out. And this ended up being the meeting place for him and God. And when he came onto that mountain to receive the law. Now, let me read that to you from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. They are celebrating that event on the day of Pentecost. And that event, when it took place, was a terrifying, fire-filled mountain. In fact, just a couple verses after what I just read, God is warning them, don't let the people break through and come onto the mountain lest I smite them. So in the giving of the law, it is deadly. God is a consuming fire. The law cannot save them. And they get too close, and they will die. But now celebrating that event where God gave the law, now we're in the New Testament, now we're at the day of Pentecost, and now the fire of God comes down. 
and it's not a consuming fire. And they're not terrified. Now they're receiving. Why? Because no one will be justified by the law. That is not the way you can make your approach to God. But now that all the work of Christ has been fulfilled, now there is a way to reunite, to unite man and God. Now there is access. Now there's a way to come to God. And here comes his spirit sent down. And it's like tongues of fire resting on the heads of the disciples. The third sign is the speech, but this leads us into our third point, which is a sign of God's plan. The speech, the third sign moves us into this point. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began speaking in tongues. In other words, speaking in various languages. Languages that they did not previously know they began by the utterance of the Spirit, supernaturally speaking languages that they didn't know, but others did. All these events are drawing the attention of the crowd, and the crowd is gathering around this upper room, and now all of a sudden they are hearing, they, people from all over the world. Did you notice to what lengths Luke went to include this list of nations in Acts chapter 2. I had to fumble through all the words that I couldn't pronounce just to get in all the names he's trying to include. He's making a point. People from all over the world were there. People from all walks of life, from all nationalities, they were now gathered around, and now they are there hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. Now, this text does not reconcile well with Paul's teaching on the gift of tongues. If you've tried to reconcile them, you've had difficulty. They, they don't reconcile well. It's as if there are two kinds of gifts. When Paul teaches about the gift of tongues in the church, he speaks of unknown tongues, both to the speaker and the hearer, like a, a prayer language for personal edification, and then unknown tongues for public speech that's unknown to all except another with a gift from the Spirit empowered to interpret. None of that is going on in Acts chapter 2. Here we have a gift of tongues that is very understandable and discernible to all the people around, the nations around. Acts chapter 2 is unique in that the languages that were not known to the speaker were very much known to all the hearers. This is beginning to point us to God's plan. We are seeing here in Acts chapter 2 a reversal of the Tower of Babel. If you remember the story back in Genesis 10, 11, sin 
was running its course. And it was bad. And the people gathered together in a sort of ultimate stance of rebellion against God to build a city. They were so united because there was one common language. And God observed the progression of sin reaching a kind of fever pitch. And he comes down and he confounds them. And in fact, so God's solution is sin is running so rampant and the vehicle that is making the sin run so rampant is the common speech. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to confound their speeches. I'm going to give them multiple languages so that I can divide them. So I'm going to slow down this process in order for me to fulfill my plan to save them. And so the building project ceased, left unfinished, and the people scattered. But now, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. All the saving works of Christ were now compiled and complete. And so now it was time. Now the new covenant was completed and in place. The gospel could now begin its work of saving people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, from every people group on the planet. All the known languages were being spoken in the hearing of people from every nation in order to reveal God's new covenant was a gospel for all people. Christianity is known as a Western religion. Christianity is not a Western religion. Maybe sometimes we would like to counter that and say, oh, it's actually an Eastern religion. No. It's everybody religion. It's a religion for all peoples. It was designed for all peoples, all languages, all cultures. It works in Africa. It works in Venezuela. It works in Pasadena. Works even Canada. This is the plan. You'll, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Old Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Disciples of Jesus Christ. You hereby have a completed gospel, a composite of all the saving works of Jesus Christ are hereby in your possession, including I have bestowed my very spirit to reside in you. You hereby have everything you need for phase two. Let this gospel have its way. Let this gospel have its trajectory. Go and do it. Go and be my witnesses. Well, there it is. I'll close. Worship team, you can come on up. How do we understand Pentecost? Completing phase one of God's redemptive acts now complete. Phase 
one complete, phase two begins. Pentecost completed the gospel so that the gospel, the grace of God, can proceed and do its wonderful, saving work. So friends, this is the starting point for us of learning and understanding Acts chapter 2. First and foremost, look to this Pentecost encounter as a saving act of Jesus Christ to prepare and provide for his church. We look to the cross, we look to the resurrection, we look to the ascension, we look to the pouring out of God's spirit. And here we find that God has provided all we need for the mission that he's called us to, the life he's called us to live. God himself residing in our very hearts, in our very lives, his presence to empower and enable our witness in the world. That's what he did then. And you and I are a continuation, an ongoing work of the trajectory of what God did on that 50th day after Passover, on that day of Pentecost. You and I would not be here today had it not been for that event. And you and I are here today because we are part of a continuation of God's plan from that event forward. Let's stand together as we close.